If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10, I know we haven't much time. And we began a conversation last week that I think is important. It was a conversation that was very simple. If Jesus said we have victory, if he declared victory on the cross, he said it is finished, te telestai, then why do I feel so bloody? Like, why does it feel like I'm getting kicked around? What, what is it, the, the, the problem of that? And, and I would encourage you to go back uh, last week and get the, the, the podcast. Uh, if These are teachings that are kind of building on each other, and, and I don't want to belabor with too much review. But suffice it to say that we covered it and said that in the same way that in 2003, our president on the, on a, in an Air Force carrier declared mission accomplished, and I, he was panned widely for it because more blood has been spilled since then. But in technicality, he was right because we had broken the power of the central government. The Afghanistan in 2003, he said, it, it, our mission is accomplished. He had defeated the government. The central power was broken. And yet, the enemy was hiding out in high places, in, in local principalities, and was in uh, places that were being, uh, we called them safe havens. And they would sneak up on our guys and attack them with improvised explosive devices. Our guys would be driving down the road and, and bombs would go off and, and then they would run off back into the hills and hide because their power had been broken. Their ability remained intact. They have the ability to attack, but no power. There's no government in place. These guys are literally running around in caves and spider holes with rocks and sticks and, and bombs made out of like car batteries. I mean, they, they, we literally could wipe them off the face of the earth. They're, they have no power there. They only have ability. And so it's incumbent upon us, and I talked about it, that Bill Crystal in his book, Obama's Wars, mentioned that what happened was that the, the, the enemy that we were fighting was no longer in Afghanistan. They had gone off and were hiding in the hills of Pakistan, that fewer than 100 of them remained in Afghanistan. And so thus you would see a report this week that we had another drone attack that we are not taking credit for, uh, that killed 17 militants, not in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan. Because we're attacking the enemy where they are. And what we talked about last week was, for starters, you have an enemy. Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, your enemy. Not the enemy, not some ethereal thing. Your enemy goes about as a roaring lion. It's a very appropriate picture. Because how does a lion attack? Man, they're hiding in the bush, hiding in the grass, and waiting for an opportune moment, and they pounce. There's a story this week of a Chinese bus driver that was driving into the mountains of China on a tour, and something had gone wrong with his bus, and he got out to check on it, and horrified uh, passengers watched as a Bengal tiger came out of the woods, grabbed him, and drug him off into the woods. Nobody saw him coming, and nobody saw where he went. The enemy, roaring lion, a tiger, it's that type of, a, that big cat type of prowess that he has. And so we established last week, you have an enemy. He's set up in principalities and powers and high places. And that if you are fighting anybody around you, you are fighting the wrong battle. He, he says, Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 10, that though we are in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power 
to demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up above the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you've got a King James Bible, you might see this. It says, casting down imaginations, verse 5. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If you're fighting each other, you're waging the wrong war. He would say in Ephesians, we don't war against flesh and blood. So if it's your husband that you're fighting with or your kids, your neighbor, your coworkers, you're, you're in the wrong battle. It's what we had done at the make, mistake we were making in Afghanistan. We were fighting all these guys, but our enemy had, been, had fled to Pakistan. It was a red herring here. And so we have to fight the right battle. And we established last week that that battle is there. Now this week I've got my own personal battle, okay? My wife is out of town. Now in the olden days, when you wanted to, you know, prove your love to your princess, to, you know, that, that your love might not be unrequited, you, you would go out and slay a dragon or something, right? Well, I don't have any, I don't even know where the dragons are, and I don't have a sword. I don't know anybody that has a sword. Actually, Gage might, but I don't know anybody, I don't think. So what I have to battle is I got to get this house clean, Okay. And, and, here's, and, and Lynn sent me this really sweet email and said she'd love to come and help me with it. And, 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 I, uh, and here's the thing. I think this, I have to prove this is part of the, like a, an obstacle course that Shannon has set for me. Okay? It's a lot like, guys, think of this. I mean, the reason she wants you to go down to the mall to buy something that she's just going to return anyway is because she just likes the idea of you going down and fighting for her. Right? To see you mentally in her mind, schlepping around the mall, trying to figure out where the Sephora store is, which, by the way, is not a store. It's a counter. Didn't know that. Uh, actually, the Cunninghams helped me find it, as I recall. Uh, so I've got to fight this battle on my own. I've got to slay this house tomorrow-ish. There's a chance she might be coming home today, so I'm going to have to be really, I might actually need to call in reinforcements. But, but I wanted to come home and say, look, honey, look, I've conquered for you. Don't look under the couch. <laughs> Don't open that closet door. But look what I've done for you, conquering the right enemy, which is the house. So we've established who our enemy is. The question is now, where is our enemy? Where do we go to find him? Because the truth is, is we can sit around and wait for him to attack us, or we go on the offense and find him and slay him. And Paul tells us where he is. He gives us the starting point with it when he says, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I almost fell out of that chair. <laughs> Our enemy, Satan, the first place he sets up shop is in your mind. When you were born again, you became a new creature in Christ, and your spirit was made new. Your body will be made new. You will be made new at his appearing. You will have a new body. And I'm hoping mine has a six-pack. But your mind, your soul, is being renewed. And the place where he is setting up those imaginations, those battles that we have to fight, are in your mind. What I love about the word is that, and go with me to Ezekiel 8. It's on page 741. Ezekiel 8. For every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture, okay? So 
when you see something in the New Testament that God is saying, there's going to be a picture in the Old Testament that shows it to us. And there's an amazing, hair-raising experience recorded in Ezekiel 8 that shows us a picture of these images, these imaginations that form in our mind. In verse 2, chapter 8, I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. In verse 3, and he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair, the hair-raising experience, of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God. He took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. And in verse 7, he says, and then he brought me to the entrance to the court, and I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. And so then I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. It's like inception, like a dream within a dream. He says, and then he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. And so I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things, detestable animals, all the idols of the house of Israel. And in front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel, and Jazaniah, son of Saphon, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? And in the King James, it says, in the chamber of his imagery. So follow me on this. Ezekiel, pulled by the hair, come with me. Go and dig into this wall. Look into the temple. And you see these guys that are the spiritual guys, the leaders. And look what they're doing. Look on the wall. These images, these evil, detestable images, these pornographic images, wicked images, the chamber of their imagery. On the outside, they look spiritual. And I would think, what if you or I were to have the videotape, do they still have videotape? The digital imaging recording of your brain played back on the PowerPoint from this week. Would you be mortified? Would you be excited, right? But in your mind are images that the enemy has placed there, whether before you're saved, while you're saved, images that are wicked, that are detestable. You're driving down the road and thinking, where did that thought come from? It's not an IED, it's an IID, an improvised imagination device. It goes off in your head. How did that happen? Where did that come from? The evil images that are in our minds. And yeah, there's the obvious ones. P pornography, men. I mean, if you are doing, participating in that, you are burning images in your mind. But more than that, there are images of failure in our mind. I don't know how else to call it, but a soundtrack that plays in your head that was put in there at some point. I, you know, in a relationship, look, I've been hurt before, and so I don't, I'm, never, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to let anybody in there because that just hurts, and so I'm not going to do that anymore. That's an image in my mind of how this goes in imagination. Maybe it's a battle that you've got with a friend or a coworker or your spouse, and so in your mind, you're even going through the argument. You're, here's this argument that plays out in your head. You know, oh, he said this, and I say that, and you just, you, this argument back and forth that isn't even real. It's an imagination. It's an image that's in your brain. There's an image of fear. That's one that I've battled my whole life. When I was a little guy, and we grew up dirt poor, 
and when I was in, you know, it just, just depends on what day it was, what I learned was all good things must come to an end. We'd have something going great in our house, and then boom, it'd blow up, and it'd be over. You know, my dad got hooked on prescription meds when he was, uh, I was in fourth grade, and was taken away and was gone for a long time. And, and I just learned, do, just don't get your hopes up because you're, you know, you're just going to get crushed. And so I, even in my, you know, I, it, you know, like any dysfunction, you can actually become, use it as a tool in your hand. It can work for you in certain areas. And I've learned to use it quite well. But there are other areas when I say, uh, I, you know, all good things are going to come to an end. So I, I don't want to get my hopes up because I don't want to get them dashed. That's the fear that I have had in me. It's, a, it, it's what it is. It's a fear that says, I don't, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, it almost is like, well, it's just who I am. It's authentic. And, and I would say that in my life, then I would go forward and do it from uh, a point of courage, which is, I always thought that courage, and I believe this, by the way, means do it even if you're afraid, right? If you're afraid, do it anyway. That's courage. But what had never occurred to me was, what if there was a, a fear-free living? Is that possible? And the answer is yes, because that's an image. It's an imagination. And go with me to Second Kings, because I want to show you why this is important. Again, another amazing old Testament picture of a New Testament principle. The image is in your mind. It's important because you, your decision making, your relationships, the way that you behave or act starts here. And so if it's pornography, if those are the images, it is going to rob you. Men don't, it's going to rob you of intimacy with your wife. This thing that you think is going to make it better makes it worse. Because you've got this thing in your head of what it should be, and I promise you, you don't want it to be that way. That's just an imagination, and it isn't real, and you need to tear it down. If that image in your mind is of, I don't want to let anybody in, then you, all of a sudden you're all alone, and you don't have any relationships because you're keeping everybody at arm's length, it's robbing from you intimacy with friends, and it is killing relationships in your life, and it is stealing from you. Stealing, killing, destroying. Does it sound familiar? We have to start with the imagery and there is a tale of two kings in, first, or in 2 Kings 18 and in Kings, 2 Kings 17, back to back. At this point, Israel had been torn into the northern and the southern kingdom. And during this time, Samaria, which was Israel, which was ten tribes, was ruled by a guy named Hosea. Judah, the two tribes, it was the first church split in history, was ruled by a guy named Hezekiah. Hezi. And there's a tale of two kings that both faced the same enemy, the same destruction, the same hopeless scenario. One was destroyed, one was scattered, and the other came out victorious. And it says in 2 Kings 18 that he was 25 years old when he started to rule in verse Three, it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. And it says that in verse 7 that he went from, uh, he rebelled against the king of Assyria, which was the king that was bearing down on him, and did not serve him. In verse 8, from watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. That's what Hezekiah was doing. Turn back with me to chapter 17. Hosea, on the other hand, says, verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So he's bad, he wasn't that bad. Hezekiah went from city to fortified city and tore down the high places. 
those places of worship that had exalted themselves above God. What did Paul say? Any high thing that would exalt itself above the knowledge of Christ, the high places. The imagery is perfect. Where was the tabernacle set up? On the plains, reachable, attainable. It wasn't some high, ethereal, weird, far-off thing. It was right there, right where everybody could get to it. The high places were set above the tabernacle, every high thing that would exalt itself above the knowledge of Christ. And he says that what he did, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 9, it says, And from watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. This king tore them down, Hezekiah tore them down, Hosea built them up. He did not tear down the high places. And so when the king of Assyria would come, he would take the northern tribes, the Samaria, and would defeat and decimate them and scatter them. It was the, dis- the first scattering of the people of Israel. Completely scattered. Are you feeling a little scattered? Your high places, those thoughts in your mind that have got to come down. Hezekiah, on the other hand, tore down the high places. And so Assyria, the king comes, and in verse 18, he starts rattling off, saying, this is what the great king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this uh, this confidence? You say you have a strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. And he goes on to actually make a bargain with me. And he says down here, it's, it's blasphemy. He says, in, uh, in verse 32, he says, Then one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree. Make a deal with me. I'll make you prosperous. Just leave this stuff alone. I'm going to make a deal with the devil. I'm gonna, it's, th- this is the words of a prophecy that God had given to Israel. Now he's taking them and saying them they are his own. I'm going to give you a land like your own and grain and new wine and a land of bread and vineyards and a land of olive trees and honey and choose life and not death. This is Satan talking using the word to twist. And what does, and here's the key, guys, if you don't hear anything else, with, with your enemy bearing down on you, whether it's in your health, your money, whatever, all those things, are, they all start in your mind. Your reaction to them is going to start with your mind. What happens from there starts up here. And here's what Hezekiah did in verse 1 of chapter 19, when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. He took it to the Lord. And the Lord would say, I appreciate the king of Assyria's uh, uh, enthusiasm, but I'm going to wipe him off the face of the earth. Because it is not your battle to fight. It was not what's happening, what's about to happen is this victory is coming to Hezekiah, and he doesn't do anything except for go to the Lord and proclaim his victory. And look what happens here in verse 35 of chapter 19. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp, withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there, defeated. And then one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, cut him down with the sword, defeated. Hezekiah didn't have to lift a hand. The battle belonged to the Lord. But it started with tearing down the high places. Everything that we have to go through to battle these enemies in our lives, the, the, the enemy that would come to us, it has to start 
with tearing down the high places. It's the first thing he did was he tore down the high places. They're, they're way off in the distance. You can't even see them. They wouldn't even seem like a big deal. We should start with the big ones in town. No, he started with the high places off in the distance. Ezekiel had to dig, dig into the wall. Go deep to find these lies that the enemy are telling you. Because at the end of the day, listen to me, and we're gonna, we're gonna flag this thing down. It's, it's a lie. Those imaginations aren't real. They're lies. And whatever sin that you're battling with, whether it's an anger problem, whether it is a pornography problem, what sin that you're battling with starts with you believing a lie. I know this because in Romans, Paul tells us, Romans chapter 1, that this descent into debauchery starts because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Those lies that the enemy would tell us, I'm going to tear you down, I'm gonna, you, you're just going to get hurt, so don't go into that relationship. Those lies that keep you from reacting, the insecurity thing, that soundtrack in your mind, we don't have to put up with it. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the what? The soul and the spirit. So those things, even those fine lines, we don't have to worry about it because the word of God will divide those between us. And to you and to me, I would say this morning, what we have to start with are the high places in our lives, identifying those lies that you have been told, that you, whether purposefully or unpurposefully, that you have believed, and I know you believe them, I know that I believe them because I behave as if I believe them as opposed to the word of God. Because I don't pursue in that relationship. Because I don't, because I'm afraid I don't want to be rejected, and so I don't, because I'm believing a lie. Finding those lies, the oldest trick in the book, and if you've been around, you've Heard me say this before. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, where are you? They had, they had eaten. And Satan had come to them and said, did God really say? That was the beginning. He lied to them. And he said, God said, I'm looking for you, Adam. Where are you? And Adam said, you know, he finally came out and said, I'm here. And he said, I, was, I hid because I was naked and I was ashamed. And God said to him, Genesis chapter 3, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? What lie are you believing? Now understand this, there's, there's a fine line. I promise I'm getting ready to land this thing. There's a fine line because he was naked. But in the Ten Commandments, it actually says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. There are two examples in the Bible of bearing false witness. When Jesus was on trial, they brought, it says, false witnesses. And they said, he said he was going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Here's the thing. That was true. That was the right information. But Jesus didn't mean it that way. What he meant it was his own body, it says, John says, that I was going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. They gave the right information, the wrong implication. That's a false witness. And what happened to Adam and Eve was they got the right information. They're naked, but they got the wrong implication, which is they should be ashamed because they're vulnerable, because they're weak, because God's going to be angry at them. The wrong implication, and I think that in our lives, some of those high places, the reason we've got to dig so deep is we've got the right information and the wrong implication. Because you know what? My dad did go to drug rehab. My dad, we did lose everything. We were poor as could be. That's right information, but the implication is, is that I always got to be afraid that that's going to happen again, and that's a lie. I don't have to live that way, and you don't either. The enemy today would want you to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we don't have to live that way.
The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty. So now we know who our enemy is. We know where our enemy is. What weapons do we use? What weapon do we take to go on the attack and on the offense of the enemy? I'd love to tell you. We got to do that next week. Sorry. We're not going to do it Haitian style here today. I'm going, to t- I'm going to tell you next week, but suffice it to say that spend this week, I write them down. Think about it. What are the lies that you believe? What's trapping you in your situation, whether it's in your relationship with each other, with your husband, with your wife, with your children? What lies are the enemy telling you? And dig deeper and say, okay, but that's the right information. I was hurt, but what's the right implication? And my God is merciful and loving. Fine, but fine, let's start with identifying those lies in our lives. And next week, I can't wait because it's so awesome and it's so simple, just like our God always is. There's a way that we can tear down those imaginations and those things that would exalt themselves above the knowledge of Christ. As we worship today, if you've got something to write on, remember I told you about that little secret magnet that erases everything you've heard when you walk out the door? We're trying to get those removed, but until we do, maybe make some notes while you're worshiping of things, of lies that you can think of. I'm not worthy. I, I, I don't speak up in a conversation because I'm just not worth it's not worth it for me to say anything. I'm not worthy. Whatever those lies are, maybe write them down because we want to identify them. We're going to tear them down next week. As you worship, we're going to have offering buckets come through. If you feel like the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaking to you in that way to give, that's awesome. We, we, we so appreciate it. Uh, we've got communion available. One of the best ways to refute the lies of the enemy is to take it back to the cross, to cross-examine it. He said this, Your Honor, but what about this? Cross-examine it. Take it back to Jesus. No better way to do that than at the table, the Lord's Supper. It's open to anyone who wants to go and to worship that way this morning. We love you guys. Let's worship the Lord.